Bibles for one final time and turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, this will be our last sermon in this series. This is the last chapter in this book. I want to make a couple of uh, brief announcements real quick. Uh, Next Sunday, we are preparing, anticipating, having a baptism service. So these are always special events in the life of our church family. I hope you'll plan to be in attendance as we rehearse the gospel, as we see it displayed before us in the baptismal pool. And then we do want to let you know about a family that the Lord in his providence is, is moving to another place um, by way of leading them in, in a job to move up north. Tyler and Christy Sprouls, I believe next week will be their last week with us. Um, we are grateful for God's working in their lives. This is something they've been seeking his will about for quite a while. And in his grace, he's led them to, to move. Um, so we want to give you time to say thank you to them. They've invested in the church family and their life group and Bible studies. Um, we're so grateful for them and for how God is at work in their life. So you greet them in the next couple of weeks and um, let them know you'll be praying with them in this transition. 2 Samuel 24, we'll be looking at just verse 1 um, in just a moment. As we begin, I want to ask you to consider how you view your God. For 2 Samuel tells us a lot about our God. As we've thought about how to read Old Testament narrative, we want to be careful to see that God is the central character in each story, in each account. And we see that again overwhelmingly in this chapter. So the question we begin with is, where do you get your theology? Whether we realize it or not, recognize it or not, we are all theologians. We all have a view of God. The question is, what shapes our theology? Our own sight, our own perception of what God is doing in this world and in our lives. Or is it shaped by something much more sure? Is it your own understanding of the world and your circumstances that shapes your theology? Is it your own insights, interpretation of events? Or is there something more solid that God has given to you to help you understand what's happening in this world, in your life? Our passage this morning, it will challenge your theology. This is not a simple text. It will lead you either to the only reliable source of right theology or it will lead us to retreat from the God of the Bible because it's not easy. He's not always understandable. He doesn't fit within boxes that we can make. He's beyond us. Let's read now verse 1 as we consider this text together. This is the word of our God. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now, this opening verse to chapter 24 is filled with difficult questions. To some of these questions, we will find no satisfactory answers. The Bible doesn't give them. That's not the narrator's job, or his point, rather. To others... Other of these questions, they lead us to a fuller and richer understanding of who God is and how he works in our world and in our lives. 
Our text will show us that our God demonstrates his mercy to his people in the midst of his judgment. Let's ask for his help as we look at this text together and conclude our series in 2 Samuel. Father, we come before you acknowledging our need. We need you to open our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear wonderful things from your law. Lord, we need to meet you here in these pages again. For you alone have the words of life. You alone can change our hearts. You alone can meet our needs. So we express our dependence upon you again. Help us to see you. Change us by that sight. In Jesus' name, amen. One current theologian writes, Reliable theology is predicated on revelation. It's answering that question where should we get our theology? He continues, he continues, it's crucial for our theology to be firmly rooted in the soil of that revelation. To whatever degree our thoughts of God are formulated apart from or in contradiction to an objective source of ideas about God, then to that degree our thoughts are random and subjective and unreliable and speculative. To the degree that we calibrate our thoughts about God to his self-revelation in the Bible, then our thoughts will be orderly and consistent, objective and trustworthy. Our habitual speech and actions put our theology, our thoughts on display. What do your words and actions reveal about your belief about God? Now, with this chapter, we come to the end of the books of Samuel and the story of David. This is just one of 62 chapters in the Bible about this man. His name is mentioned 1,118 times in Scripture. This is the only name, the only name rather, used more often in Scripture is Jesus himself. Needless to say, David is a rather prominent figure in our Bibles. One pastor has stated that we could sum up the book of 2 Samuel with three words. Triumph, David's triumph, David's transgressions, and David's troubles. The question that the book of 2 Samuel raises for us is how can this man Especially the man we've seen uncovered in 2 Samuel. How can this man, who sins so spectacularly, be rightly called the man after God's own heart? Or the man after God's own choosing? Why this man? Our view of David as this immensely gifted poet of the Psalms, of the mighty champion of Israel, has been reshaped by our study of 2 Samuel. It's not been as flattering to David as we might have expected or we thought it might be. In fact, compared to Saul, his sins have greater and more devastating consequences, don't they? Why would God use him? Our sovereign and wise God is able to accomplish his will through anyone he chooses. He's told us he can make the rocks cry out if he desires. We see in the pages of the Old Testament, he can make a donkey speak for him. He can choose whoever he likes. But our merciful God desires us to respond with humility and repentance 
to who he is. To submit ourselves to his purposes. One author notes, there's no explanation for a man like David other than the grace of God working in an open and honest heart. There's a reason God has recorded so much about David in all of his humanness and so much through David in the Psalms. He's a pattern, an example, a model toward which every believer can strive with a sincere heart. He shows us how to respond when we do fail. He tells us there is no perfect king, but one. And David again and again turns his heart to the Lord. That's the contrast between David and Saul. This illustrates that God is merciful to the humble and he resists the arrogant who refuses to turn to him and obey his word. That's the great lesson of 2 Samuel. That's the overarching message. Submit in humility to the sovereign king of kings. Stop trying to live your life as if you are in charge. As if you know best. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. King David was one of the greatest men to have ever lived. He's certainly one of the greatest leaders in all of human history. And we would say that based on his relationship to God, not based on his accomplishments. But our passage this morning demonstrates that even King David cannot save his people from their greatest threat. What's their greatest threat? It's the anger of our God. The righteous anger and judgment of our God. This morning, our outline will follow what should now be a familiar progression in the life of David. When we first come upon 2 Samuel 24 and we read through that chapter, we say, again, this is how the book is going to end because we see sin and then judgment, but finally atonement. Sin, judgment, and atonement. Let's return to uh, 2 Samuel 24 and this time we'll read from verse 1 through verse 10. Verse 1 again, and the anger, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that means from the north to the south, the whole thing, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Eror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre to all the city of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb or the southern portion of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone... Through all the land they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. 
And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Verse 1 presents quite the challenge to our understanding and again to our theology. What's, what's happening here? Is God leading David into sin? What complicates matters even more is that in the parallel passage of 1 Chronicles 21.1, we read, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. What's going on? Well, as we consider the answer to this question, we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So, remember the opening chapters of the book of Job. God calls all of the heavenly hosts together, and with them he calls Satan. God initiates the dialogue between he and Satan, and therefore sovereignly designs Job's trials for his own glory. We see this when God calls Satan and the created beings of the sovereign God as his created being. He must obey. God calls as if he's his pet. Come. And he comes. God brings Job then to Satan's attention. Have you considered my servant Job? Satan accuses Job of only following God because of what God has given to him. And he poses this test. If you curse him, if you take away those blessings, he'll curse you. God gives Satan to put him to the test. And all of the hardships that we know happen to Job come collapsing in on him. Job doesn't know anything of this conversation in the heavens. And yet the divine author tells us in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. The rest of that book is the ongoing working out theology among his friends as to what is happening in Job's life. And the question overwhelming Job that he demands an answer to by the end is why am I suffering? And God doesn't answer that question. Instead, God is revealing himself to Job. God answers his why question with who. Who is in charge of your life? He answers in a powerful way through all of these circumstances and hardship. Another example we see is Joseph's conclusion about what had happened through the hardships of his life. It's an accurate and helpful theological conclusion. Over and over when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, he says, God sent me here. And in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What we see over and over in the Bible is that we cannot see either the end of the test nor often its purpose. But God can. But God can. We'll see that again in our text this morning. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes of 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. The two stances between Satan and David, who's initiating this, and God rather, they're not mutually exclusive, of course, nor even particularly antithetical. In God's universe, it is impossible to escape the outermost bounds of God's sovereignty. God is at work here, he affirms. 
Whether his providential will over the devil is portrayed as permissive, as in the case of Job, or something more directive, God is always in charge. As for the the moral dimensions of the matter, it's important to recall that even within the framework of 2 Samuel 24, God is not arbitrarily or whimsically tempting David to do evil and then rather viciously clobbering him for it. Whatever God sanctions here is portrayed as God's response to antecedent sin. God's anger burned against Israel, we're told in verse 1, so that certain things took place. God is initiating. He's at work. What we learn from this text is that God intended to bring punishment upon Israel for their sin. And he used the secondary means of Satan's and David's free choices to bring that about. We're told in James 1, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself never tempts any man. Yet in his sovereign will, he employs agents to accomplish his will, his purposes. We don't always understand how those fit together, do we? David recognizes he is responsible for the choices he has made. The narrator will include his exemplary confession twice. David says, this is my fault. I made sinful choices. He is right. He's not unclear in his own mind as to the reason for God's judgment. He says, I have done wrong. That's true. Now here's the encouragement from this challenging statement about God's absolute sovereignty. He's not afraid to raise issues that we have questions about. He's not afraid to show us that he is bigger than our minds can comprehend. He wants us to know that and believe that. Not so that we can cringe before him like he's a Greek God about ready to smash us. But so that we will trust him. You see, the end of this text doesn't show us that God is just judging. He's leading them somewhere to show his mercy in judgment. We see that even Satan, with all his cunning and power, is not outside of God's control. We see that even sin is not outside his righteous and sovereign control. Everything and everyone is held within the firm, wise, and loving grip of a righteous and sovereign God. The right question isn't always why, it's who. Who's in charge? Because there are many questions raised in this text, we can often, in a text like this, miss the forest for the trees. Verse 1, though, controls the entire narrative. God's intention is to punish Israel for their sin. And again, we have a question. We're not told what sin it is they've committed. It's been suggested that perhaps they're being punished for the rebellions of Absalom and Sheba. That would make sense. But in the end, we're not told why. Just that God is rightly angry with their sin. And yet, here's where God is going. Here's how God is working. He's seeking to appease his own wrath in this text. We'll see that as we proceed. 
Do you see his wrath though here at the beginning is the true crisis of the story? His wrath is. Not David's choices or the judgment that falls. His wrath is the issue. We must affirm with David what he writes in Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Even though we may not see how it's a kindness right now. He's working for our good. This is always true, whether it's obvious or not. Our passage raises the question here at the beginning, how will God's wrath be appeased? How? God takes action for the sake of his people. He's leading David not just to punish Israel for their sins, but to provide atonement. God orchestrates every aspect of these events in order to demonstrate just how merciful he is to those who deserve his wrath. And isn't that the story of our entire Bible? Here in 2 Samuel 24, we have the gospel portrayed to us again. Our sins are many, but his mercy is so much more. We may not be able to fathom the mind of God, but we can see his heart of love and mercy toward us while we are still sinners. The mistake of some theologians, professional or otherwise, is the assumption that we can know, that we do know all there is to know about God. It's a massive misapprehension to suppose that to master God's revelation is to master God. Theology is not about mastering God. It's about being mastered by God. That's what 2 Samuel shows us. Now we finally come to verse 2 and our pace begins to quicken. David commands Joab to go and begin this census. And we're surprised to read that Joab, Joab of all people, is counseling against it. What is his reasoning? Again, we're not told explicitly. It seems he understands to some degree that David wants to see this large number recorded and perhaps this hints at the reason why this, that why this census might be sinful. But again, we're not told. David's word prevails and the census is taken. Now this accounting takes almost 10 months to complete and during that time, David's conscience doesn't bother him at all. But then in verse 10 we read, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. We still have no answer as to why taking a census is sinful. God had told Moses on three separate occasions to take a census. It certainly seems right then to conclude that it was either the way the census was taken or the reasons for it that were wrong. Did the census express a failure of David to trust in the Lord and his promises? He's measuring his military might, maybe. Was it an act of arrogant pride giving David a reason to boast in his own strength? Was David planning a military campaign that God had not commanded or sanctioned? These are all legitimate questions. Yet the narrator's not interested in revealing the answer to us. Can I give you a word of encouragement for Life Group this week? 
Don't spend your time trying to answer all the questions we don't have answers to, but focus on what is revealed. There are many here that the narrator intentionally leaves us thinking, why is that happening? Focus on what is revealed. The important point revealed in verse 10 is that David knew he sinned. And he responds immediately, even before the word of the Lord comes. At least that's the way the narrator's representing it here. If David's sin here is ultimately pride, it does provide for us the lesson that the delight of God's people, especially the leaders of God's people, should be in the Lord himself. His character, his promises, his faithfulness, and never in worldly resources, never in worldly measurements, never in human sight or insight, no matter how good they might look. We want to measure our success by God's measurements. He requires us to be faithful. We want to be sure as we're looking for fruit from the work that we're laboring in, that we're looking for his work among us. That we're careful and quick to give him the praise and glory for what he's doing. It's easy for us, it's always a temptation to us to measure by the numbers we see, by our bank accounts, by how secure we feel. That's not the right measurement. We ask, what is he accomplishing that only he can truly accomplish? One commentator notes, David's sin is at least a warning to us not to be simplistic about numbers in the church and certainly shows us the folly of equating mere countable statistics with the blessings of God. They may be, but they may not be. Look back again and notice in verse 10 that David's troubled conscience leads him to repent. How often do we fail to take this very simple yet very important step in our lives? How often do we fail to take it as seriously as God takes it, as David takes it here? Our sin is so profoundly self-deceiving. It hardens us and blinds us from doing the right and humble thing of accepting responsibility for our choices, of seeing our sin from God's perspective and not our own. I'm doing fine compared to, at least I haven't done. But David speaks to the Lord when he recognizes his sin. He appeals to the only one who can take away his iniquity. Are you regularly confessing your sin before your God? Are you running? David doesn't hide here. That's not how the narrator portrays this. He runs to God, the only one who can adequately address his sin. Or do you, like most of us, push those sins aside, minimize them, compartmentalize them, excuse them away? Only as we humble ourselves before him and seek his forgiveness do we find restoration and peace. Our God is more eager to forgive than we are to ask. We look secondly now at God's judgment. Let's pick up our reading in verse 11. We'll read through verse 17. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. 
Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who is working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. In verses 11 through 13, God speaks a word of judgment to David through his prophet Gad. David's given these three options, years of famine, months of a losing war, or days of pestilence. Each of these punishments would have severe and deadly ramifications. Probably the longer, the more severe, the more death. We're also to keep in mind that God is using this census that David conducted in order to discipline Israel. It's easy for us to lose sight that this is about David's sin, but really God is working on Israel through this. David's rightly in this great distress over such a choice, and yet again he wisely turns his heart and mind to the Lord. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. David knew the mercy that he'd received from God when he sinned with Bathsheba. He knew that God is merciful even in his righteous judgment. David does not say specifically which of the three options he chooses. So in the end, God chooses for him. He sends a plague to Israel. And notice the phrase there at the end of verse 15. Until the appointed time. What does that tell us? It tells us that even sickness and death fall under the supreme and sovereign hand of our God. Even sickness and death are submissive to his commands and boundaries. This plague began exactly when God sent it. It lasted exactly as long as he had appointed and David did not even know how long exactly that would be. There comes a surprise in the text then. Look again at verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented. He said to the angel, it is enough. Now stay your hand. The surprise is that God in his mercy relented. The plague is shorter than David had expected. Now, while thousands upon thousands die in this plague, we're still to affirm the Lord is righteous in all his ways. In Hannah's prayer of praise that the books started with, she states the Lord kills 
and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. I've shared this quote before, but it illustrates this principle so well in the Tolkien classic Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo has realized the villain Gollum has begun to follow their party. He's been following them for some time. He's drawn by the ring that Frodo carries. Frodo says to Gandalf, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Gandalf replies, pity? It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. Consider God's response to Job. As Job had predetermined how God should act. Job at the beginning responds perfectly. God said so. But as the story continues, Job begins to demand of God something he has no right to demand. He begins to accuse him of doing wrong by Job. And God finally does answer. He demands, who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? In the book of Job, Job's friends are judged because they speak what they think is right theology based on their perception of the events. They speak wrongly of God. In our passage, we don't know what sins have aroused God's anger. We're certainly in no position then to state whether or not God's punishment is too severe, as terrible as it is. Whenever we see a punishment in Scripture that seems to us to be too severe, it should lead us to adopt God's view of sin and judgment rather than criticize Him. This passage calls us to see the sinfulness of sin and God's righteous judgment from His perspective rather than from our own limited viewpoint. God's revealing what he thinks in this situation. And that should be enough for us. This text again shows us the terrible, horrible consequences of sin. And facing God's anger, this should make us thank him even more. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Our God is merciful even in judgment. But he must judge. Think of it. God stored up the greatest expression of his wrath for the most perfectly innocent human that ever walked this earth. God may not be fair in your own estimation, but he is just. What gratitude and service should this produce in each of us? In verse 17, we see God's king interceding on behalf of the people. He says he's willing to lay down his life for his sheep. According to verse 16, this isn't why the plague ended. Again, the narrator records it in a sequence. And yet, in David's words, we have to hear, anticipate, hear the foreshadowing of the good shepherd who did give his life for his sheep. 
Let's look now finally at the atonement made by David in verses 18 and following. Verse 18 says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Jerusalem. Now, we could note many things here in these final verses, but consider especially David's commitment to give of himself. When Arana offers to give everything David needed to make the required sacrifices, David refuses. He's seeking no shortcuts in worship. He will make the appropriate sacrifice in order to purchase what God had required to him. He will give of his own means. This tells us, it teaches us that God intends our worship to be self-giving. Right worship is to cost us something. We cannot enter into his presence with carelessness. It requires something of us. We're to give give him of our time, our energy, our attention, our talents, and our treasure. We're not to come here and worship among God's people in a very passive, casual way where we're thinking the people on the stage perform for me and make me excited. We're to come and give of ourselves, the best of ourselves. This is our reasonable sacrifice, Paul will say. It's only reasonable to give him the best of ourselves because of all that he's given to us. In the final verses of 2 Samuel, we see God's king acquiring this land onto which he is to make sacrifices to God. He's to offer sacrifices, atoning for the people's sin, thereby propitiating, exhausting God's wrath. And we see by the end, the sacrifices bring an end to the curse of God on the sins of the people. Do you see now why this is a fitting conclusion to the book of 2 Samuel? Why the editor put these last chapters together like this? Here is God's king making sacrifice for the sins of God's people in order to propitiate his wrath. God has led David to buy this piece of property. This is a very important spot, piece of land in Israel's history. This is the land, Mount Moriah, where God told Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him. And in the last moments, he provides an atoning sacrifice. 
This is the land on this very spot where Solomon will build the temple for Israel. This spot. Here is where these kinds of sacrifices would be made again and again until the day not far from this exact location will be the final spotless lamb who sacrificed himself for the sins of his people. David was willing here at the end to give up his life for his sheep, but his life would not atone for sins. Jesus is good. The book of 1 Samuel began with God's people in spiritual darkness, without a leader, without a word from God. In this last chapter, we see God now resolutely fulfilling his promises to provide for his people. They have a leader who's making sacrifices for their sins. They're still just as sinful and needy as when we first met them at the beginning of these books. But he's provided them a great leader. He's established a kingdom. And yet even that king is still a sinner. It's still pointing forward to their greatest need for a savior, the perfect leader. That is still unmet. That need is unmet. And yet this tells us God is not undeterred. He is determined to meet with a sinful people, to be with them, to atone for their sins. And God has made even greater promises to David in these books. Through David now we gaze at his greater son through whom we can affirm for us today there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Do you see, this is the great problem in all the Bible. God is angry at our sin. And he provides atonement. There's mercy in his judgment through Christ. This text teaches us, it applies to our lives. It tells us when made aware of your sin, Cast yourself on the atoning mercy of God. See your sin the way God sees it and run to him as David does. How many of us stand where David stood facing the wrath of God, his discipline for our sin? When we recognize we've sinned against him, let us turn back to him in humility and seek his mercy for our sins immediately, quickly, as soon as we recognize it. If you don't know him this morning, turn to him. There is time for you. You're hearing this message so that you will turn to him in repentance and faith. He wants all of your heart though. You can't come without it costing you control of your life. You can't give him just part. Lay down your life and rest in his mercy. As we heard this morning, Micah 7, 8 tells us God does not keep his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Lamentations 3, the steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. God will show mercy to all who turn to him in repentance and faith. So where do you stand with God this morning? When we find ourselves guilty of sin again, follow David's advice. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. How can we be sure that he will receive us when we come? 
because his hands bear the marks of his sacrifice as they were nailed to the cross to offer you eternal pardon. Second Samuel tells us to rejoice. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we turn to you again in awe, in humble reverence, recognizing your right to rule in our lives. Lord, you show us even here that when we don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, what you're seeking to accomplish, we can trust that you're up to good in our lives, that your intention is for our blessing, even if that's a difficult road, even if that includes discipline. So we may, may we not fall into the hands of men, but trust ourselves into your hand alone, for your mercy is great. We need to be convinced of that truth, not just be able to give assent to it, but may that conviction be driven deeper and deeper into our hearts, that we need to run to this God who is merciful, Lord, you are angry at our sins and we are all sinners and yet you've made provision. You've provided the atoning sacrifice as you did for Abraham and David and now for all people in Jesus Christ. May we run to you, our Savior. 